How did it happen that genius would fail? We'd soon learn of the epic scale of a portfolio that bet it all on stability, enabled by the founders' unique credibility. They assumed that returns were normally distributed, leaving them certain how risk was attributed. This portfolio was short options of all shapes and sizes, vulnerable to scenarios in which our favorite index rises. To 45, the VIX would ultimately surge as this giant portfolio teetered on the verge of toppling the financial system at large, leaving the maestro Greenspan no choice but to take charge. Oh wait, I read from the wrong cue card. That's a bit on LTCM. This is supposed to be a brief review of the second quarter of 2023. Sorry, I was taking the advice of Alpha Exchange guest and author, Jared Dillian, who said that the cure for writer's block is simply to start writing. I suppose for a podcaster, it is then to start talking. So let's take the next 30 minutes or so to rip through some of the themes that characterized the second quarter and beyond. Recall that our Q1 review came in the immediate aftermath of the SVB debacle. By the end of March, the KRE was down 25% on the year, and incredibly, the yield on the two-year note had fallen by as much as 130 basis points. Fast forward to the end of Q2, that same Treasury security now yields around 5% up 110 basis points since early May, and now just a few basis points from the pre-SVB high. Incredibly, our trusty WIRP page on Bloomberg reports that just two months ago, the euro curve had nearly four cuts priced in out to the end of the year. These are gone now, replaced by the expectation that the Fed will hike once in 2023. In place, those same four cuts now appear at the end of 2024. If higher rates and higher for longer were a threat to the stock market in 2022, it appears equities have learned to live alongside less friendly Fed policy for now. I do find it useful to begin this short retrospective by reviewing the SVB tumult. I want to start there because to me, it's fascinating that a steady rise in interest rates can be such that the non-duration risk-focused risk manager can get caught out. And in the case of SVB, chunky, non-retail deposits, highly electronified banking, and social media were a toxic brew that caused money to fly out the door at an astonishing pace. As a brief aside, can we together relish in the irony that the largest officially unprotected but ultimately backstopped by the U.S. government depositor at SVB was USD Circle? That's correct. The second largest stablecoin providing an on-and-off ramp for crypto investors who effectively said hard no to the U.S. banking system, had $3.6 billion of uninsured deposits sitting at SVB. The deposit flight that would occur at a pace so quick that Janet Yellen and her friends at the FDIC were left trying to steer not just one, but two large banks through an unwind on a weekend, believe it or not, when daylight savings stole a precious hour from them. The resulting uncertainty lifted the VIX to as high as 26 but the real story was in the surge in volatility in short-dated rates, the likes of which we hadn't seen since 1987. The very rise in interest rates that caused SVB to implode caused the same interest rates to plunge. Rates fell so dramatically that it caused certain hedge funds to experience losses on the order of 25% in a month and then have to quickly shutter. Think about that for a moment. The rise in rates causes bank failures, which upends the Fed hiking cycle so definitively that trades betting against falling rates implode, causing hedge fund failures. Market prices can be punishing. They should humble us all. A quick aside, 
Obsessed with the acting on the series Succession, I found myself re-watching the show, examining nuances in the dialogue and character development. I even jumped into the podcast to learn more about the backstories on how the plot lines were created. There are some great characters in this show. Alexander Skarsgård as Lucas Madsen, Adrian Brody as financier Josh Aronson. With the show now in the rear view, I've been re-watching The Last Dance, the docuseries about Michael Jordan's incredible basketball career. First, in sports gossip news, Michael Jordan's son Marcus is now dating Scottie Pippen's ex-wife. In the run-up to winning six championships together in the 1990s, I'm assuming the two Chicago Bulls stars didn't contemplate this as an outcome three decades later. Alongside The Last Dance, it's been interesting to watch Air, the movie starring Matt Damon as Sonny Vaccaro, who landed the sneaker deal with Michael Jordan. We learn in Last Dance of the against-all-odds pursuit of Jordan by Nike. We learn that Nike, having secured the contract, hoped that in four years they would sell $3 million worth of Air Jordans. In the first year, they sold $126 million worth. Remember what Yogi Berra told us. Predictions are hard, especially about the future. Overwriting is a common strategy in markets and a topic we will return to later. Let's imagine if Nike had decided to fund some of its early production and ad expenses by selling a four-year call option on Air Jordan revenues struck at $3 million in sneaker sales. Essentially an overwrite against its long exposure. Hey, We'd be thrilled to get to that number, said the cost-conscious Nike executive. You're telling me we can reduce our expenses in the meantime? This outperformance is a reminder of how realized outcomes, profits, losses, sales, costs, votes, etc., can sometimes massively outstrip predictions. We see this time and time again in markets. When market prices misbehave, outcomes can spell disaster for those whose imaginations failed them. And in markets, as in life, we generally believe and can only imagine what we see and recently experience. It's difficult, sitting idly on an expressway, to envision the end of a traffic jam. It's equally difficult to imagine the end to a raging bear market or a self-reinforcing liquidation. Our internal distributions of possible outcomes are vastly impacted by what we experience day to day. And this is especially the case in markets. A succession of results, good, bad, or otherwise, fuels the narratives we readily ingest on the Bloomberg terminal. I'll believe it when I see it, might be appended to, or when I read it. These narratives fuel our desire, dare I say our need, for markets to make sense. We're driven to reconcile the why of market prices. Recall the tech stocks are long-duration assets that will get hurt when rates rise narrative. Well, I'll cherry pick here, but in Q2, the TLT was down 5%, the triple Q is up 16%, and the S&P up 8%. I'm actually reasonably sympathetic to the notion that, especially when rates are pinned near zero and valuations are highly elevated, it is that portion of the market without a lot of free cash flow that sits in the crosshairs of fast-tightening Fed policy. This was certainly the case by late 2021. But work from experts like AQR throws the relationship into statistical doubt, and I take that seriously. In the moment, however, I wonder if the narrative is strong enough to impact investor behavior. Here, the narrative becomes reality. Who can ever forget the widely accepted notion that housing prices cannot decline on a national basis? This fed directly into the rating agency models that produced sparkling AAA ratings 
on dodgy securities. Quickly back to basketball and Michael Jordan. No surprise that the last dance features his epic six three-pointers against Portland in one half in 1992. It was an incredible thing to witness live. Of course, these days that's called Tuesday for Steph Curry. But three decades ago, this was unheard of. And as Marv Albert said, Michael indicating he can't believe it. I bring this up because it sparks debate on the hot hand fallacy. Was Jordan on fire and getting him the ball a must? Or was this outcome simply a low probability result taken from a distribution of shots from a clearly skilled shooter? Most finance industry folks I speak to, generally a statistically minded bunch, are pretty sympathetic to the hot hand. Mark Twain told us there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. I wonder if he could make a three. With that short digression, let's turn to the subject of this briefing, the Laval dynamics of Q2 2023, and whether they are set to persist as the second half is underway. First, let's establish that we see stabilization everywhere, at least by way of market prices. We see calm in the flagging premium of the one-day VIX ahead of the CPI release, in the steep losses incurred by the VXX product. We see a greater stability in the disappearance of large one-day moves in the S&P. We see it in both realized and implied correlations, each of which stand at multi-year lows. We even see it in the flat-like pancake inflation break-even curve, hovering neatly between 2 and 2.2% from two years out to 30 years. And it's not just in equity markets. A simple cross-asset index of one-month implied volatility, incorporating the S&P, HYG, TLT, Euro, and GLD, for example, has recently dipped below 10 putting it in just the 10th percentile of observations over the past 10 years. What action did we see in the second quarter of 23? Well, the short answer is, outside of lots of breathless commentary on the debt ceiling, not much at all. Realized vol settled in on the S&P, and as we record this, my trusty RVOL index of one month realized volatility on the S&P sits below 10 a favorite saying of mine is that nothing bad in markets happens when realized vol is below 15. To wit, using the last two decades of data, the S&P has never been down over a three-month period when realized vol is below 15. That's pretty compelling. Further, the average return over three months when the realized vol is below 10 is nearly 10%. No surprise then that the S&P delivered an 8.3% simple return in Q2 with a sharp ratio nearly of 2.5. Another favorite saying of mine when it comes to describing the economics of being long volatility is that, quote, big moves matter most. And by that I mean it's the large one-day moves in the S&P that actually account for the lion's share of the profits for being long vol. Put differently, a 4% move in the S&P for a long vol holder is worth a lot more than two 2% 2 moves. To appreciate this, first let's agree that realized volatility is the engine for long option strategies. For a volatility trader, parting with premium is not about hoping that the underlying will ultimately go in the money by more than that amount by expiration. Instead, the goal is to manufacture trading profits over time through a delta hedging strategy. In aggregate, these profits should recoup the option premium paid and more. For the vol seller, there's a mirror image of these economics. In selling a straddle, a vol trader doesn't simply pocket the premium and do nothing. 
On the shortfall front, the delta hedging strategy is almost certain to produce losses along the way. If successful, the straddle premium taken in outstrips the losses incurred in keeping the trade delta neutral, or at least that was the goal of LTCM. So let's briefly review why big moves matter most in determining realized vol. Consider an asset that typically moves about 60 basis points a day. That's roughly a vol of 10. Now let's introduce the concept of a shock day. Here the market or the asset learns something, incorporates something. On our last podcast, we talked about the special day each quarter for U.S. equity when earnings are reported. Here, the volatility of the stock can be two to five times higher than that of an average day. Let's assume that a shock day occurs once a week, i.e. one in five trading days or 20% of the time. And further, let's assume that the shock day is a 2% move, roughly three times the average day's move of 60 bips. Well, the realized vol of such a series with four moves in five at 60 bips and the other one at 2% is 16.6%. The once weekly shock took the realized vol from 10 to 13.5. Not bad. Now let's change it up a bit. Let's use the same base vol of 60 basis points a day while reducing the shock day frequency to once every two weeks. But let's double the size of the shock to 4%. What's the overall vol of this stylized series? It's actually a lot higher at 22%. Let's ask and answer the question from a slightly different angle. How many 2% moves do I need to get to 22% realized vol if my base daily vol is 60 basis points? The answer is five. The math of volatility trading is such that substantially large one day percent moves have enormous impact on P&L. When it comes to vol trading, big moves do indeed matter most. It is these large moves that cause realized vol to pop and allows the convexity of a delta neutral option position to kick in. The long vol investor gets to extract value from a delta hedge that's linear, but an option that behaves in a convex fashion. So what do we see? As the first half of 2023 is in the books, let's do a quick comparison. If we look at the number, for example, of 2% up moves versus 2% down moves in the S&P this year, we've had just one of each thus far. In the first half of 22, we had 14 2% down moves and 12 2% up moves. Without moves of this size, long vol has suffered quite a bit. And if we go back to the call that I made at the end of 2022, it was that the VXX had plenty of room to fall. As I write this, this robotic ETF has shed 55% of its value just in 2023 alone. Regular listeners of the Alpha Exchange will know that your host is obsessed with both the time and cross-sectional variation in the price of insurance. In the Black-Scholes world, the vol of an asset is both known and constant. Of course, we know the model assumes that the world is far tidier than it actually is. The price of optionality of insurance is always on the move. The poet in me wants to say that markets without friction actually are fiction. Let's take a second and compare the price of insurance in this neat theoretical world of Black Shoals to the pricing dynamics in automobile insurance. Versus the moment-by-moment -moment world of asset prices flickering on screens nearly 24-7, Geico's car insurance policy premiums don't move all that much. Essentially the outcome of some staid, unvaried risk-based modeling exercise, car insurance is priced 
based on the notion that past loss outcomes do the best job of predicting future loss outcomes. In car insurance, as opposed to financial insurance, there aren't buyers and sellers, just a seller, or perhaps a few sellers, setting the price. With respect to stable premiums, it doesn't appear that drivers go through periods of becoming either better or worse behind the wheel. After all, as you know, 80% of drivers believe they are above average. Over time and in general, there's no real difference in driver's average speed. It's never trendy to drive faster or slower. In markets, by contrast, leverage, both high and low, can characterize unique regimes. For Geico, as well, there's no real consideration of the roads themselves. They don't become slicker for periods of time. A mass breakdown in traffic lights is not a thing either. But for markets, both the drivers, i.e. the stocks, and the roads they drive on, i.e. broad economic and financial conditions, are in states of near constant flux. At the company level, business models and capital structures change. The cost of and supply of credit rises and falls. The regulatory climate lurches from one extreme to the other. And the trades themselves become a part of the fabric of the highway system. The roads are often paved with trades that make for smooth and sometimes fast driving. What's the result? Just as the VIX has been as low as 8 and as high as 83, one month implied volatility on Apple has been as low as 13 and as high as 110. There's an old saying in markets that, quote, theta is the rent on gamma. I love this and have used it over and over again. It's an intellectually honest statement underpinned by the notion that there's no free lunch in markets. That, in order to enjoy the benefit of convexity, one has to pay the freight, so to speak, that is, time decay. In paying homage to former NYC mayoral candidate and founder of the Rent is Too Damn High party, Jimmy McMillan, I often augment theta is the rent on gamma with the added statement that the rent is often too damn high. Short-dated options are gamma-intensive, but premium will melt away awfully fast. A big move will produce meaningful profits, but it needs to happen in a short period of time to offset the theta bleed. Thus, the linkage between gamma and theta for short-dated options means that when realized vol is very low, option premiums will melt away. This makes even low-priced options difficult to pay for when markets flatline. The impact of faltering realized vol on strategies that own short-dated options can be punishing. Recall last week we brought to life the volatility term structure through an analogy of the cost of renting an umbrella as the skies darkened and a torrential downpour appeared likely. Person renting said umbrella to you would surely charge you more and you'd happily pay. But your interest would really be in renting that umbrella only for the estimated duration of the storm. You'd be less interested in renting the umbrella for a week or even an entire day. Thus, the relative price of umbrella rentals would reflect that short-dated demand. When markets become quiet, as they have become, the opposite occurs. How much would you pay to rent an umbrella on a bright, sunny day? Not much, especially given the inconvenience of walking around with it all day amidst blazing sunshine. This is the price of all as this podcast is being recorded. The one-day VIX recently closed below 10 on consecutive days. There has been no rain in the very short-term market forecast. Over the course of Q2, the VIX was, quote, well-behaved. As a parent, I've always liked that characterization of an asset price. It's as if we told the VIX to go out there and have fun, but not too much fun. 
The second quarter saw the VIX start at 20 and never really got past it. Markets grappled with the debt ceiling uncertainty, more on that in a sec, but the engine that supports the VIX, realized volatility, never got out of neutral. In Q2, the highest level of one-month realized vol reached in the S&P was just 14. There's only so much premium of the VIX to realized vol that can be justified, fears of a debt ceiling debacle notwithstanding. When McCarthy and Biden cut a deal, surprising, by the way, to me, that the game theory aspects of the situation didn't entice both sides to drag it into later rounds, the VIX floor caved in, not supported by a healthy level of concurrent realized, and now without the forward-looking risk premium of debt ceiling uncertainty, the VIX breached 15 in early June. As I explain the faltering VIX on two fronts, I'm reminded of a simple framework I created years back to account for the factors that drive the level of implied volatility. I call this the five C's. This is a simple shorthand to answer the question, why is the option price where it is? The five C's include carry, credit, calendar, concern, and capital. The recent decline in the VIX brings in three of these factors. First, and I'd say in the view of most who trade options for a living, carry. Of the components of the five C's, carry is probably 70% of the driving force. Without realized vol, options are worth nothing. It should be no surprise then that the correlation between the VIX and one-month realized volatility is on the order of 80%. When Q2 began, one-month realized was at 19. When the quarter ended, it was at just 10. The faltering of the earnings engine for long vol strategies pulled the rug out from under the VIX. But so too did the removal of concern, a second component of our 5Cs framework. This is a qualitative measure that incorporates some version of behavioral finance in how vol is set. I'm of the mind that the market's mood goes through cycles. Sometimes we simply ignore bad stuff. Sometimes we are crippled by narratives of doom, spending too much time on Zero Edge or even the Bloomberg TOP page. Investors allow their probability distributions to incorporate very fat left tails. In the publish or perish world of financial journalism, fear sells. This notion of concern also gets tied into the other C that helped explain the flagging VIX by the end of Q2, and that is calendar. Calendar also matters. This is the list of known sources of uncertainty that the market can attempt to price. Earnings, elections, referendums, economic data reports, OPEC meetings, Fed meetings, crop reports, FDA decisions, and policymaker summits are a few examples. They are date certain on the calendar, and option markets can reflect the uncertainty in implied vol term structures. While there was not an absolutely definitive date by which the debt ceiling needed to be raised, it was pretty close, and certainly the disparate pricing of short-dated T-bills that matured before or after June 5th indicated a strong conviction that it was early June or bust. Getting this resolved, in bold quotes, because the U.S. debt problem, MMT proclamations aside, is a serious systemic issue, was the third leg by which the floor on the VIX gave way, and we ultimately closed below 13 on June 22nd. The other two C's are credit, an acknowledgement of the linkage between corporate bond spreads and equity vol, and capital, a broad factor that is unique from the others. A world flush in risk-bearing capital is generally one of low option prices. Think of how inconsistent the early 2007 lows in credit spreads and VIX were with the actual risks. 
Capital was being stuffed into carry, pushing volume spreads lower. On the flip side, think of how high risk premia remained during the back end of 2009, even as the market was recovering, but there remained a shortage of risk-bearing capital to put to work. By the way, also suggested to me for inclusion in the five C's, crash risk, correlation, confidence, and crowding. On this last one, I'm reminded of Yogi Berra saying, quote, it's too crowded. Nobody goes there anymore. I love it. As we round out this Q2 summary, we should also talk about the performance of the S&P and Triple Q in light of the staggering returns delivered at the top of the index. If I had told you that the S&P enjoyed an 8.3% return in just one quarter, would you have guessed that a basket of healthcare, energy, and financials comprising around 30% of the index was essentially flat during the same quarter? Such was the realized return dispersion of Q2. Tech, 28% of the index, was up a staggering 15% in one quarter. Consumer discretionary, 11% of the index, was up more than 13%. The case for diversification is certainly made here. In 2022, by vast contrast, tech was down 28%, but healthcare was down just 4%. Derivative strategist Rocky Fishman, founder of ASIM 500, makes the point that the correlation between healthcare and tech was just 13% in Q2. The zigging and zagging of the two largest sectors puts downward pressure on the overall level of realized vol of the S&P and in turn serves to suppress the VIX. I'm of the mind that correlation levels that are either sky high or substantially low are simply not sustainable. One of my sayings that vol has memory and vol mean reverts applies to correlation as well. As Q2 ended, through-month realized correlation among S&P 500 constituents had dipped below 20. While not without precedent, that is unusually, and I would argue, unsustainably low. That's in the third percentile of observations over the last three years. By the way, to see and graph this, use the VCA page on the Bloomberg Terminal under Index. There's a tab for Realized and Implied Correlation. There's an old rule of thumb I like to use, that four or five correlation points is equal to one vol point. That is, if we assumed all else equal, that instead of 20, S&P correlation was 30, that adds two to two and a half points to realize vol. Just the shorthand to keep in the back of your head. Speaking of correlation, I want to touch on a theme prominent in market dialogue in 2022, stock bond correlation. For a long time, and especially when rates plumbed to such low levels at the end of 2020, I and others question the efficacy of duration as a hedge. The old adage, there are no bad securities, only bad correlations. I saw this as a useful warning that the degree to which institutional portfolio construction leaned into this notion that owning duration provided some magical positive carry hedge that consistently defrayed losses on risk-off episodes. While this actually has been true most of the time, there are periods when the bond market is actually the proximate cause of the risk event. And this is all about price. There's no defensive property in a 10-year note yielding 1.5% at the end of 2021 with year-over-year -year CPI already at 7%. Many market participants far brighter than I wrote about this, among them D.E. Shaw, Man Group, and GMO. Q2 saw a modest return to the more traditional negative correlation between stock and bond prices. Using the TLT as a rough proxy, its realized correlation to the S&P was negative 18% in Q2. It was zero in Q1, 
it was positive 27% in Q4 22. So we are returning to some environment in which interest rates are high enough such that a growth shortfall or a shock to risk appetite leaves space for bonds to rally as stocks fall. It's difficult to know where this is headed, but it's certainly the case that the correlation should not be viewed as especially reliable in a regime in which the Fed continues to fight inflation from above target. Gone are the days of consistent inflation shortfall, forward guidance, and suppressed rainfall. I'm reminded of yet another of my sayings, and hopefully these don't bore you, which is that equities are short to straddle on rates. For different reasons, if interest rates either fall or rise very quickly, the outcome is bad for risk assets. In the first, a shock has compelled a flight to safety and a duration rally. In the second, like the 2013 taper tantrum, the risk-free asset is itself the sponsor of the event, forcing equity markets to reconsider assumptions used to discount cash flows and sometimes creating a VAR event. Of course, 2022 is another example in which higher discount rates were associated with a material decline in stock prices. I see a couple of scenarios that may play out in the stock bond correlation arena. First, markets and the Fed become consumed by some risk that quickly forces repricing of the economic outlook and or creates an overhang of uncertainty. SVB was just this. We talked about how remarkable was the round trip in two-year yields up 100 and down by the same amount in a span of six weeks. That is just incredible. That 100 basis point decline moved the VIX from 19 to 26 in a matter of three days. The bond market has now retraced nearly all of that steep decline in yields. The two-year note yields more than 5% for the first time since March 8th, the day before the SVB meltdown. With this increase has come a flattening of the three-month two-year yield curve which now stands at just 33 basis points. I like this metric in providing information on the market's views of how sustainable Fed policy will be. Let's review it. On the day prior to SVB, this curve was dead flat, with both the three-month bill and two-year note yielding just north of 5%. As banking system concerns intensified, but the Fed's target rate was unchanged, short-dated bond prices rallied, and the three-month, two-year curve reached an inversion of nearly 150 basis points in early May. The Fed's preferred way of looking at this is what they call the, quote, near-term forward spread. This is the spot three-month bill rate minus the three-month bill rate 18 months forward. You can find this on the Bloomberg terminal by typing .ntfs index. Again, in early May, this index was minus 220 basis points, that is, market prices implied a 220 basis point decline in the three-month rate out 18 months. That's a huge inversion and one that, acknowledging that hindsight is 2020, felt far too high. We might characterize this curious pricing as some statement that the market was embedding a premium for accident insurance, that the Fed might have to turn on a dime. Others have suggested that retail investors found religion in a 4% risk-free short duration instrument, and that the aggregate demand for safety pushed prices higher and yields lower. I'm actually a buyer of both of these explanations. One thing we can do is look at the S&P versus the two-year. Map these together, and at least according to the famous ocular regression technique, there's strong co-movement in stocks and short-term yields. The ocular regression, by the way, will not be found 
in the annals of statistics. It's simply about eyeballing it and being satisfied that there's a relationship. Let's peek at the data. We know that 2022 was all about higher rates and lower stock prices. More recently, it's the opposite. Over the last three months, the realized correlation of the S&P to two-year yields is around positive 40%, and this has got as high as positive 55% recently. By late 2022, this correlation was actually negative 50%. I want to finish with some thoughts on a few trade recommendations made at the end of 22 based on observations of market prices, of vol, of skew, and of correlation that I saw then. The first was to be short the VXX. Normally, if a stock is down more than 50%, folks notice. As this podcast is being recorded, the VXX is down a staggering 55% already this year. There's not a lot of commentary on this. We know that this steep decline comes with the territory with respect to being long vol. We also know that products like the VXX have a return profile with large negative skewness. Being short can deliver consistent gains, but the occasional, potentially enormous loss. Declines of this magnitude tell us something about the starting point for vol as 2023 got underway. And that starting point was one in which the VIX was at 20. But that doesn't tell the whole story. Holding the VIX at 20, unusually, was the bid to the upside part of the S&P vol surface. In fact, the spread between the VIX and one month 5% out of the money call vol at the end of the year was in just the 14th percentile over the last five years. By sharp contrast, the VIX spread to the 5% out of the money put vol was in the 82nd percentile. What's the takeaway? Those upside calls were expensive. And as we trace the decline in the VIX over the first half of 23 and the more than 50% loss in the VXX, we can look especially at the fading bid to those upside calls. That 105 call vol that finished last year at 17.5% finished Q2 23 below 10%. It's fascinating to me that, quote, index products like ETFs, passive bond strategies, and even put spread collar overlays are simply agnostic to the market price. By this, I mean that the triple Q was buying tech stocks robotically in 1999 at stratospheric valuations. On the rates front, the Barclays AG was seeing huge inflows of capital seeking to track an index that offered paltry, meaning below 2% nominal, and oftentimes negative real yields. And who can forget the XIV, happily shorting VIX futures at 10 in late 2017. On the equity risk management front, overwriting is a popular strategy, but only at the right price. As I said recently, a 9- or 90-year-old can be convinced to either buy or sell an option. It's simply about the price. In today's environment, a 3-month 5% out-of-the-money call with a vol of 11 doesn't screen favorable to me. Over the last three years, that's in the third percentile of observations. That call premium versus its price at the end of 2022 is down a remarkable amount, now costing less than a third than it did back then. Of course, these risk management trades are often part of packages. You might combine a written call with a long put or put spread, both of which cost less now than they did at the end of last year. But is collecting 75 basis points for a three-month 105 call on the S&P worth it? Well, to be sure, that call has certainly been effective recently. In 2022, for example, with the S&P suffering a loss of 20%, 
the BXM fell by just 11%. This year, however, the S&P soared by 16% over the first half, with the BXM enjoying just a 10.5% gain, and that is with the call being written at considerably higher vols at the start of the year than now. Warren Buffett famously told us, price is what you pay, value is what you get. In options, we start by observing price and try to finish with some assessment of value. Options are trading all day long by counterparties that ultimately arrive at a different assessment of value. With respect to the S&P, we observe that the price of vol is pretty low in historical context, but that doesn't necessarily mean these options are to be bought. If that same three-month, 5% out-of-the-money call at 11 vol exists within a regime in which realized vol is 5, the buyer may experience some remorse after parting with even a small premium. So implied vol is low on a nominal basis. It's reasonably fair on an implied to realize basis. The VRP, the vol risk premium, is around the 50th percentile. There's a third category of evaluation to be done, and that is around the forward-looking set of risks. Sure, the debt ceiling is behind us, but I fear that these returns, in part at least to some degree to AI mania, that have been realized at the top of the index in Microsoft, in NVIDIA, and other names, have forced folks back in. The index is the tail that wags the dog, forcing the benchmark hugger, in the excellent words of Howard Marks, to buy. The business model of institutional money management, amounting to a call option on AUM, creates a short gamma profile for the money manager, causing him or her to buy because the index is rising. Long a call option on assets, the manager's biggest risk is underperforming a blistering benchmark. It's difficult to get away from this impacting her behavior. It's value investing turned upside down. For me, risk managing exposure to the S&P is critical at this point in the cycle where equity valuations have diverged substantially relative to the level of rates. Stocks are up because earnings are rock solid, but there seems little to no risk premium associated with the idea that in the realm of monetary policy, lags can be both long and variable. This resonates as a real risk. So yes, if you are in equities, buy the put or the put spread as the skew has become more favorable versus 2022. I'd argue that the price of this insurance is a pretty good deal right now, but leave the call out for now. At this price, it's not worth selling. In fact, if you're long stocks that have had especially strong performance, it's really worth contemplating replacement strategies, forking over some premium to be long calls instead of Delta One exposure. Apple, a newly minted $3 trillion company, sports a two-month at-the-money implied vol in the sub-5 percentile. It's worth a look. If we can find options that are both nominally low in cost and also carry low, we've struck gold. Unsurprisingly, in the no-free-lunch world in which we live, this is not generally a thing that markets provide. But speaking of gold, let's close out this podcast with some updated thoughts on how the yellow metal can fit into a portfolio. I argued at the end of last year that there was a place for the GLD, especially as the winds of correlation appeared to be shifting to a more traditional risk-on, risk-off environment. Gold can shine in a classic risk-off when rates quickly fall. Its returns are very correlated to rates. I did not have any notion that SVB would implode and pull the two-year yield down by 100 basis points in the process, but I certainly expected the GLD to do well in such a scenario. 
It did gain 7% in March. I thought gold would be an excellent hedge against debt ceiling uncertainty. It's hard to argue that it was, although there was a day or two when the negotiations appeared fraught. Short-term rates fell and gold rallied sharply in early May. Since, as two-year rates have round-tripped the SVB decline, gold has suffered. Earlier, I noted that the correlation between the S&P and two-year yields was in the region of positive 40%. For gold, this relationship is inverted, with the GLD experiencing a two-month correlation to two-year yields of minus 59%. Will the recent rise in yields get disrupted by some growth or profit scare? I don't know, but I do see value in two-month gold vol below 12 when realized vol is 11. If you've gotten this far in the podcast, bravo. I hope this has been a constructive 45 minutes. I want to finish by previewing some of our upcoming guests, which I'm very excited about. Among the joys in hosting the Alpha Exchange is meeting new people, and my previous guests have been wonderful in providing recommendations and making new introductions. We've got Corey Hofstein, the founder and CIO of Newfound Research, coming on. In addition, I'm looking forward to conversations with Daniel Villalon, head of portfolio solutions at AQR, and Rocky Fishman, founder of ASIM 500. Lastly, Mimi Duff, head of the New York office at GenTrust, will be a guest. I feel strongly about trying to play some small role in increasing the visibility of female experts in markets, and I'm really excited to have been introduced to Mimi. I look forward to hosting more women on the Alpha Exchange. Until next time, I hope you have a great week.